Okay. Now, good to see the young people up front. First rule of tabernacle. Thank you. Look, don't touch. Look, don't touch. That's the first rule. There's a lot of things here that are not, you know, like that fire is not real. This is, and there's some heat over here. But there's a lot of fragile things, too. So the first rule is look, don't touch. Well, let's see how we do this morning with the shofar. I'm going to ask you to turn down the mic if you would. Thank you. Thank you. We begin by blowing the shofar to remind us that that's how the Israelites gathered for their different uh, purposes of gathering, whether it was warfare or worship or work or moving the tabernacle. They had certain signals that they did with the trumpet. Of course, if you read in the book of Numbers, you find that there were also two silver trumpets. I don't have a silver trumpet, but we've got the shofar or the ram's horn. And the little guy. One more time on the mute. Thank you for the reminder, because that always is problematic. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it took me about 50 times before I realized I've got to stop doing that, putting it by your ear like that. So last night with the young people that were here, we did some things on the tabernacle that we may have to uh, sort of go over again for some of the others that weren't here. Perhaps we'll do that tomorrow. But right now, let's just get a little bit of a refresher in our minds so we know where we're at. Obviously, as as you see, this is a model. It's not uh, the full size. It would be impossible to get that in here because we remember that when we look at the whole structure that's here, We remember that sometimes everything you see here, that is generally called the tabernacle. And then sometimes this tent here, which is on the inside, which would be from this post to here, that was called the tabernacle. And then sometimes in Scripture, you read about this inner curtain that would have been the ceiling, and that also is called the tabernacle. But when we think of the whole uh, area here, by the way, young people, What is this big area here called? Yes. There is a fence around it, but what's the fence around, Luca? The courtyard. The courtyard, yes. So the biggest area was the courtyard. And if you think in modern-day terms, this was 150 feet long, basically. So it's like half of a football field, if that helps you, you see. Too far for a dolphin to run. No, never mind. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so half a football field long and then 75 feet wide. And in the center of this end here was that curtain down here, which is called, yes, the gate. Yes, that was the way to get in. Brightly colored so you couldn't miss it. The outer walls of pure white linen, which are represented here. Um, anybody remember how tall those walls were? You do? Seven and a half feet. So these are seven and a half feet. And then this piece here, which is this big tent here, how high was it? Yes. Uh, it, well, it may have been. I'm not really good on cubits. Uh, you could be right. Mm, taller than that. 
Nope. You're getting there. It was 15 feet tall. So it was twice the height of the fence that went around it. So it would have stuck up, you know, 15 feet tall. And then it was divided into two rooms, which were uh, 15 feet here. I mean, 30 feet here, 15 feet here, which would have made this a cube 15 by 15. And so we have the three parts, basic parts of the tabernacle. The part that's already been identified here as the courtyard, which was the biggest part. And then this room, which was the holy place, yes. And then this room, which was, yes, you, yeah, Violet, holy of holies. Thank you. Yes. So those were the three basic parts of the structure of the tabernacle. Now, as I've mentioned before, just some who have been here, this is a model. It's not exactly easy to call it a certain scale of model. Some things are a little bit smaller. Our altar is smaller. The lampstand, we don't know how big it was exactly, but the altar of incense, the table of showbread, and the size of the Ark of the Covenant in here are the exact sizes according as we can figure from the measurements given us in Scripture. So, uh, again, we don't have the exact height and exact shape dimensions of the lampstand. We're not exactly told the size of this piece of furniture, which was called, yes, yes, the laver, place of washing. So that's basically uh, what we have here represented, obviously, shrunk down in size. So with that in mind, as somebody reminded us this morning, we were thinking about the gate, and when you came into the gate, which was the only door into the tabernacle, the only, where am I, where am I? Ah, okay, don't do that, which was the only entrance into the tabernacle, the first thing you met was this bronze uh, altar or copper, it may well have been a copper, and you'll notice that as you begin to think through, nothing here was done by accident for a couple of reasons, one reason, as the scripture says, that the tabernacle was a model representing things as they are in heaven. And so much of what's here replicates or reproduces in imagery and picture form what uh, things that are in heaven, which is why we have cherubim here, and we have cherubim that would have been over the whole ceiling of this covered structure here, cherubim surrounding the throne of God, which was the Ark of the Covenant. And then... Um, God also wants us to think about other things. So you'll notice that out here, there's some things that we won't have a lot of time to get into, but at least it's worth your thinking about, that when you come to this part of the tabernacle, which was the courtyard, these boards or these pillars rested on bronze or copper, uh, you know, foot pieces uh, that they sat in. They had silver tops. They were made of wood, plain wood, all the way out. Everything in here is gold. You see that these two are copper or bronze. Kind of connects these, this place with this place. You'll see that here, these are silver. No tops here. And the back ones here topped with gold, all covered with gold. And so you begin to think. And then even here, which we, unfortunately, when we were setting up with our Levites that were here to help set up, I forgot 
to put these where they're supposed to be. So at the bottom of the the boards that made up the holy place and the holy of holies, they would have been on these silver sockets. So I left one out for demonstration purposes. So silver and gold, everything had a meaning to it. Everything had a significance. The tabernacle is a thing that we learn by way of teaching, direct teaching. The tabernacle is something we learn by way of contrast with Old Testament and New. One of the big differences between the Old Testament form of worship and New Testament worship that we read about in the Scripture is that everything here, in a sense, was sensual. And by that we mean it appealed to the natural senses. There were sights. There were smells, there were sounds, there was incense, all of those things. All that was connected with Old Testament worship. We don't find that connected with worship in the New Testament. Not sights, not smells, not incense. It's not sensual. It's spiritual. It's a whole different thing. doesn't mean that there wasn't any spiritual aspect to this, but it was a whole different way of getting to the senses of people, if that, if that makes sense to you. So uh, it's a really uh, important contrast to see. And sometimes you'll see people nowadays in the New Testament, different church groups, trying to bring back in some of these things that were strictly a part of the Old Testament. And it goes to extremes. Certain branches of religion, you look at them, you think, well, boy, he looks exactly like that priest from the Old Testament. There, He's got a big hat on and you know, robes and garments and all this kind of burnt incense. and So all that's connected with the Old Testament, you see, which was done away, of course, with Christ. And we remember that that was the, one of the significant things when ultimately, by the way, young people, listen, what is this called again? Uh, let's see, you. The veil, yes. And when Christ died on the cross, and the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. The Spirit of God indicated that a new way was open, and that whole Old Testament system was obsolete. Now, it took them a while to figure that out. Like we say sometimes up our way, they hadn't waded out of the mud good yet. You know, they still had a lot of it clinging to them. But it took a while because they'd been taught that for a couple thousand years, and, you know, that's your whole life and everything. It's hard to give it up. It's a lot of what the book of Hebrews is about. You know, you got to imagine that if you were living when the Hebrew people were living that were written to originally, you know, the book of Hebrews, you still had a standing temple, something you could see. And now to tell those Jewish people living there, if you're going to believe in the Messiah, you come outside of the gate, you come outside to Christ. Well, they couldn't see Christ. He was in the heavens. They could see the temple. And so it was a big tough thing for them, a lot of them, to make that break because all of this was part of their life. It wasn't just something they did on a Sabbath day. This was incorporated into every aspect of their life, their their national existence and everything. So um, tough for them to make the break, but eventually many of them, of course, did. So now with that in mind, let's go um, again. Uh, let's go back to the book of Exodus. And we're going to turn to Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30. 
And we're going to drop down to verse 17. Exodus thirty seventeen. The Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass, and his foot also of brass, to wash withal. Thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar, and thou shalt put water therein. For Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet thereat. When they go into the tabernacle of the congregation, they shall wash with water, that they die not. Or when they come near to the altar to minister, to burn offering made by fire unto the Lord... So shall they wash their hands and their feet that they die not. And it shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his seed throughout their generations. And so um, the labor, which is here. Now remember that the labor is interesting for a lot of reasons. Uh, for Number one, we remember that the first thing they came to, and we said the order was very important, that if you came through the gate, the first thing you met was the altar of sacrifice or the brazen altar. And you learned that if I'm going to approach God at all, God's the one who told us how to come. I've got to come his way. I may not like to see an animal killed. I may not like the shedding of blood. It might seem horrible to me. But God said, this is the way you must come. You're going to approach him. It was by the death of a substitute of an animal or whatever the sacrifice was, whether it was a dove, a goat, a bull, a sheep. You had to come God's way, and that meant by coming through the means of death and the shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There is no forgiveness. And so that was the basic lesson you learned. If you started switching things around, you destroyed the picture of the truth that God was representing. If you put the laver first, then you said, well, before I can come to God, i got to clean up. i got to wash up. Thankfully, that's not the way it is. You know, a lot of people get confused with that. They think if I'm going to come to God, i got to clean up my act. And listen, you come to Christ, he'll clean you up. You see, it's not about just cleaning up the outside stuff. He works from the inside out. And so very important that these were put in their proper places. By the way, I've added two things on the table back there. If anybody's interested, I put some of my testimony tracks in English and in Spanish. Feel free to take any of the things back there on the table that you like. Now, I want to talk for a minute about something that to me is at least interesting to think about. And it has to do with the order of how these things were 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 constructed, and I'm not going to turn to every passage. I'll quote them to you or give you the references, but this is the order in which we find in Scripture that the things were actually constructed after they were given the instructions and the dimensions and how to build them and so on. So in Exodus chapter 25, we have the building of the ark, which is interesting because it doesn't start out here. It starts from God and goes out to man. Human beings, you see. It's not man making his way to God. Uh oh. My bad. Don't forget to mute your phones. <laughs> it's God coming down to man. So it begins with the construction of the ark and of course the mercy seat. And then there's the instruction for the for the table of showbread in Exodus chapter twenty five and verse twenty three. The lampstand in Exodus chapter 25 and 31, the tabernacle as a whole, 
Exodus chapter 26 and Exodus chapter 26, the different coverings that we have here. Don't know if any of the young people can remember this. Very hard question. How many coverings covered this 45 by 30, 45 by 15 foot thing all the way? How many coverings? Four. Can you tell me one of them? You knew the four. Can anybody tell me one? You can. Badger skin or seal skin that covered the whole outside. So this is all you would have seen. You wouldn't have seen the pretty stuff and the beautiful stuff inside. It would have looked kind of drab on the outside or plain. Yes, there's three more. Yes, Violet. Uh, you, you got it half right. There actually was a ram's skin dyed red. You know what a ram is? It's a, it's a male goat, right? No, it's a male sheep. <laughs> Get your animals right there. Uh, okay, now there's another one. Anybody? Yes. Goat skin. Yes, this was the rough goat hair that was inside. And then finally, this veil or tabernacle, this would have been the curtain. So when the priests looked up, they would have actually seen this in this section here and in this section here. It provided the wall here and the ceiling, uh, you know, over there. Well, actually, it would have provided just the ceiling on the inside because you would have had the gold boards that, that came out here. So that's the coverings that we have there. So all of that was the order in which it was found and then the altar. And then finally, when you come to chapter 28, and I'm not going to read the whole thing except to say that from chapter 28 through 30, you get the priesthood established. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because it's not until you get the priesthood established that the instructions are given for the making of the labor. You didn't need a labor until there was a priesthood to use the labor, you see, because I don't know if you remember this or not, but the the closest you ever got, or not the closest, really the only place you ever came as, quote, an average Israelite was at the altar to bring your sacrifice. Only the priest could use the laver. Only the priest could go into the holy place. And only the high priest, one day a year, could go into the Holy of Holies. So the average Israelite never used the laver, which is interesting because the laver, which contained water for washing, was something that was used by the priest for cleansing. It wasn't optional. We read in those scriptures that they are to use this laver to wash before they perform what they did here, before they did anything in there, and if they don't, they'll die. So it was crucial that the priest had to be cleansed and washed with water, of course. So there was, this is how they were so-called, you know, sanctified in that, that way. Now this is the only piece that wasn't covered during the march. There's another whole lesson which we won't have time because we only have so many sessions that every, all the furniture had to be covered with certain cloths. And parts of these, the tabernacle veil and things that were taken down and covered with certain color of, of different material on the march when they were moving, but the labor was not covered. It was almost as if, well, it seems like, doesn't it, that they were reminded as they walked through that wilderness, which was dusty and dirty, 
that they needed cleansing. And God was providing them a means of cleansing. There's another interesting aspect of the labor, and that's found in chapter 38. So turn there with me if you would. Chapter 38. He made the laver of brass, or perhaps copper, and the foot of it brass, of the looking glasses of the women assembling, which assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. He made it with the looking glasses. Now, um, let me think. Somebody I know has a different translation that doesn't say looking glasses. What do you have there? 38... From the bronze mirrors of the women. Now there's one truth that you learn universally um, when you study the scripture and when you study people in general. And it's a very profound statement. So, so you have to catch this as I say it because you could miss it. It's very involved but it is this folks are folks folks are folks people are people so whether they live back then or they live now although they did a lot of things that were different and a lot of you know activities that were different people are people so listen if you were an israelite lady i mean you didn't want to come out of the tent in the morning until you knew how you looked you see and so you had your mirror but it wasn't a mirror like we have of glass It would have been a highly polished piece of copper or bronze, however you want to read that. You see, where you could see a reflection in it. Because what what Israelite woman would ever want to come out of the tent before she'd done her hair in the morning, you see, and done all her, you know, lotions and potions and everything else, you see. So so they had their looking glasses. But what a beautiful thing it is to see. Now remember, when it came to the tabernacle, we haven't read where all this stuff came from. But there's two places where this stuff comes from. This is a very hard question, young people, but I know your capabilities, and you might be able to answer this. Where did they get all this stuff? Yes, Violet. Yes, from the Israelite people, but where else? Yes, the offerings that they brought. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yes. What were you going to say? But there's another place they got this stuff from. Where'd they get it from originally? Anybody know that? Yes. Yes. Oh, (laughs) yes, that'll work. Yes. So before they left the land of Egypt on the Passover night, God said in the old... English uh, King James Version, you are to spoil the Egyptians. That is, you're to go to them and say, and basically, listen, by that time you're at, the, you're at the ninth plague and all this stuff has happened, and I'm sure that they're like, what can we give you to get rid of you? You know, Here, take this, take that, get out of here, basically. is the way I kind of read that thing. So they, they got all this stuff, but you see, I've always called it back wages. I mean, they worked as slaves for all those years, and they didn't get paid. And so now, you know, God made it up for them. So there's there's a beautiful thing that, that we find there because back to what um, you said, 
when Moses, when the Lord said, here's how the Lord said it. If there's anybody here who's of a willing heart. Now, you're in the book that has to do with the law, the book of Exodus. And God could have said, I command every Israelite to bring. No. No. When they got involved in this, which was God's building program to build the house of God. God said, every person who's of a willing heart. And they came. And they gave. And they gave so much stuff that the workmen came and said, Moses, you got to tell them to stop giving. When's the last time you ever heard a preacher or somebody say, tell people to stop giving? (laughs) They're giving too much. And they were giving not because they were commanded to or forced to. And you know, these people had been involved in a building program before. They were involved in a building program for the Pharaoh. Building monuments to man's glory. Now, they come out. They're redeemed. God has delivered them by the blood. God has delivered them by power. And here they are. And it's another building program. You think they might have said, hey, we've had enough building programs. No, but this one was different. Now they were redeemed. You know, I remember, I tell the story sometimes in my testimony. A friend of mine just died here a couple of weeks ago. He, he and I were friends for over 55 years. Went to junior high school together. Best man of my wedding. Anyway, we lived in Savannah, Georgia. Neither one of us were saved. And uh, we lived for a while in his aunt's house next to his grandmother's house in Savannah. And there was only one requirement. That every Sunday, Aunt Mary said, we had to go to church. And I'm going to tell you, we'd go to this church with Aunt, with Aunt Mary, and, uh, you know, the way they did it at this place was they passed around this offering plate, right? And so, you know, I flipped God a quarter. I mean, I was going back, you know, a lot of years ago, you know, uh, 50 years or whatever, almost, and not quite, but anyway, long time. And if I was really feeling magnanimous, I'd flip God a dollar, you know, in the offering plate. And I would watch Aunt Mary, who lived on a very small budget, she would put a $5 bill in the offering plate. And I thought, the woman is a fanatic. She's lost it. $5? Who would give $5? I mean, a quarter, a dollar, maybe. $5. I just couldn't fathom it. Then you know what happened? I got saved. And I wished, oftentimes still do, I wish I had more to Not because I have to, but because God saved me. It's not about paying him back. It's just that now I want to take what he's given me and try to help and be a blessing to other people. So there's a unique thing about this. All these materials, in a sense, they got them because God gave them to them. That's where it all came from. It was God who said, you go to the Egyptians, you get this stuff gold and silver and the cloth and all the rest. And then they turned around and used what God gave them to get involved with God's building program. And, it, and, and one of the great things about that chapter about where that Jude was talking about where they came and they gave and they gave and they gave is that it was men and it was women. You'll find it was an equal thing. Men gave, women gave. Remember the women who 
took and sewed these rough goatskins. This was a big, I think, if I'm not mistaken, this was the biggest of, 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 of the coverings because it came down over and, and so on. And, you know, it went over a 45-foot, I mean, 15-foot by 45-foot long. So it was a huge thing. took a lot of goats, a lot of sewing. And they didn't have, you know, singers back then or whatever they were, you know, sewing by hand, rough stuff. And, and, and then we don't know how, we don't know why, we're not sure exactly when, but the women came and gave of their mirrors that were used for the building, construction of the labor. So the women took something that had to do with their personal glory and their own beauty. And the women gave of that which had to do with their personal glory to be used in the service of God. Highly reflective surface so that as the priest came to wash in the laver, he could see his very reflection, not only from the highly polished brass or copper, but also as the water would provide that reflection. He could see if there was dirt or anything that needed to be cleansed on his hands or on his feet and so on. The women, using their own personal glory and sacrificing things that were for their own personal beauty to enhance the house of God. Still something that women do today. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And so that's where it came from. Now, what was it symbolic of? Here's something that I like to think about in the tabernacle sometimes. Imagine that we had like a time machine, and you could go back in time and transport yourself back to where there were actual Israelites here, and and you came across an Israelite who would very proudly say, well, you know, I don't know what you people have. You call yourself a Christian, whatever that is. And uh, and so you have... uh, uh, what what do you have? He says, well, you know, we have an altar. We had an altar where sacrifices were made and blood was shed. Do you have anything that corresponds to that? Oh, you could say, well, yes, as Christians, as a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews tells us in chapter 13, we have an altar. But our altar is not a physical altar like that. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice and the gospel which flows out from his sacrifice. Oh, yes, sir. Well, the Israelite might say, well, you know what? We had a labor. We had a place of cleansing for the priest to come to because he had to be cleansed before he could perform his duties and service to God. Do you have anything that corresponds to that? See, And you can tell him, well, we, we know a little bit of something about cleansing too. Let's think about it. And so let's look, if we could, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. I love this chapter. I say that a lot about a lot of chapters, but uh, (laughs) I love this particular chapter. I'm not going to read the whole chapter for sake of time, but you may remember that this is where the Lord Jesus rebukes the scribes and the Pharisees because they came and said uh, in verse 2, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? They wash not their hands when they eat bread. Now listen, don't think that this is young people like your mother or your father telling you, go wash your hands before you eat dinner. 
go use hand sanitizer, you know, whatever it is nowadays, you know. No, 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 this was, this was not that. Matter of fact, if you ever go to Israel still to this day, particularly when you get in Jerusalem, you get outside Jerusalem, things kind of slacken down a little bit, but when you're particularly around Jerusalem, any restaurant you go to, any washroom you go into, you'll see a double-handled cup sitting on the sink. And it is for the ritual washing of the hands, ritual washing. There's a certain way you do it. You pour it on one. Now that one's clean. Now you can touch the other and pour it on that one. You do it so many times. So this was this ritual, which was the scribes and Pharisees' way of trying to interpret what God said they were to do. But they got all hung up on the outward part of it, the outward cleansing part. And so when they said, why do disciples eat and they haven't washed their hands? It wasn't, you know, their hands are dirty like a hygiene thing. It's like they're not following the traditions here. They didn't do the whole, you know, ritual thing of washing their hands. To which the Lord tells them, he says, uh, why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition and so on? And then moving down the passage, he says in verse 7, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines and commandments of men. And he called the multitude and said unto them, Hear and understand. Not that which goes into the mouth defiles a man, but that which comes out of the mouth, that defiles the man. And the disciples said unto him, Don't you know that the Pharisees were offended? By this statement. And ultimately, the Lord is going to get to the place with them to where he says in verse 17, do you not yet understand whatever enters into the mouth, eventually, you know, you eliminate it, okay? But that which comes forth out of the mouth comes from the heart. That's what defiles a man. Out of the heart, verse 19 proceeds, evil thoughts and murders and adulteries and fornications and thefts and false witness and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashing hands, that doesn't defile a man. That's all outside. Pharisees are big on cleaning up the outside. While their hearts inside are wicked. And washing water on the outside... Not going to cleanse the inside. You need something deeper. And then a very unique thing happens. It happens as Jesus went from into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, and a Canaanite woman came. You remember the Canaanites? God said the Israelites, when they went over with Joshua, destroy the Canaanites. Their culture, their civilization is so wicked and so corrupt and so vile. And I've given them opportunity for all these hundreds of years. And it, 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 you just got to get rid of it. You know, Canaanites, and don't do their practices. Canaanites. And the Canaanite woman came out of the coast, and she said unto him, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with the devil. And he answered her not a word. She had no claim on him as the son of David. She wasn't an Israelite under the covenant. And his disciples came and said, Get rid of her. Bugginous, my rendering of that translation. And he answered and said, I'm not sent but under the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then she came and worshipped and did reverence and said, Lord, help me. Ah, well, 
You cry, Lord, help me. Now you got his attention, don't you? Not on the basis that he was the son of David. So he said, it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. Now, some people say, well, you know, he wasn't really calling her a dog here. Well, he was, but there's different kind of dogs. You know, there's little foo-foo fluffy dogs. And I sent my daughter, Rebecca, a picture. I was driving here. I was stopped at a red light, so I wasn't driving and taking the pictures. Okay. But the car in front of me on the back window said, um, Frenchy mom. Now, my daughter has got this thing for these French bulldogs, you know. She doesn't have one because they're really pricey. But so there's all these little cuddly little dogs, cute little lap dog pets and things. And then there's these mean, ugly junkyard dogs, you know. And so he was kind of calling her the little fluffy foo-foo dog, you know, not the mean, ugly, nasty junkyard dog. Listen, it didn't matter. To a Jew, a dog was unclean. A dog didn't matter whether it was foo-foo, fifo, fifi, or whatever. A dog was unclean. And so she, he says that to her, and she says, true, Lord. Yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from the master's table. And he said, O woman, great is your faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. And her, her daughter was made whole from that very hour. And this woman found a cleansing. See, the Pharisees claim to be clean. This woman said, if I've got to take the place as a dog to get my daughter help, well, I'll take the place of a dog. I'll, I'll confess I'm unclean. And when she confessed she was unclean, she found cleansing, at least help for her daughter. I won't turn to it for sake of time, but later on, this is a huge thing in the book of Acts. This whole thing about cleansing. And it helps us to understand a lot that goes on in the book of Acts. Um, you remember that Peter has that experience with Cornelius. And the Lord has to let down the sheet three times. And he shows him all these animals. And basically Peter says, in Jewish language, I've always kept kosher. <laughs> I've never eaten that stuff. You see, And the Lord says to him three times, Peter, that which I have cleansed. Don't you call unclean or common. And in the very next chapter, God's preparing him to come to the first Gentile in the book of Acts to get saved. Cornelius. And remember that God saves Cornelius and there's an evidence of it by the manifestation of the Spirit of God. And when Peter goes back later and they've got this big council in Jerusalem, he's like, who was I to, to stand against what God was doing? God purify their hearts by faith. And he gave evidence of it by putting his Holy Spirit in them. Because God cannot put his Holy Spirit in an unclean vessel. And so the evidence of the Holy Spirit showed those Jews that the Gentiles that were saved were not unclean because God put his Holy Spirit in them. So this was very important, this whole subject of cleansing. Now, most of the time, when people think about the tabernacle and think about the labor, 
This is a very acceptable thought. I wouldn't argue or fall out with anybody who had this thought because there is something here to be said that once you are cleansed by the blood, you don't need to be in Christian language to have that done again. But you do need cleansing, don't you? We need the washing of the water by the word because we walk through this world and we get defiled. Not that our physical feet just get dirty, but our minds and everything else, we need to constantly bring ourselves to the word of God and allow the spirit of God to perform that activity of cleansing us now as believers. But turn with me to the book of Hebrews, and I want to give you one other thing that perhaps we can think about in connection with the labor, and we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he's consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Let me just pass this on to you. It's not purely tabernacle, but it is in a sense. You'll find the word veil used in three different ways in the book of Hebrews. You'll find it used here for the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it veiled the glory that was within. You'll find it used of the veil of the temple that was torn from top to bottom. And you'll find it used in Hebrews chapter 6 to talk about the veil, which again, the curtain that separates the earth from the heavens, the place where God dwells. So, He made this new and living way, and we have a high priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure pure water. Now remember this, and you'll find it in 1 Peter, because Peter writes to Jews, and it's kind of some Jewish thoughts there. He talks about the sprinkling of blood. Remember this. No Hebrew, no Jew, would have ever thought of washing with blood. Water was for washing. Blood was always sprinkled whether it was the sprinkling of the blood on the altar or the sprinkling of the people uniting them with the covenant, blood was always sprinkled. Never were you washed in blood. Now, having said that, if we come together tomorrow and somebody wants to sing, Are You Washed in the Blood? I'll sing it with you just as loudly and as enthusiastically as I possibly can, because I know what it means. But if the technical language of Scripture, blood was never for washing. So you have the dual effect of the cross of Calvary here. You've got the conscience, the guilty conscience, cleansed by the sprinkling of blood, and then the body washed with pure water. So I'm going to suggest to you that one other way to view these two things in the courtyard is to look at them as the dual effect of what Christ did on the cross of Calvary. 
He provided blood to cleanse the conscience of guilt. And he provided that cleansing power of the Spirit of God to purify the body. Let me give you one other passage that sort of links us together. And it's found in uh, the book of Titus, which is just back a couple of books. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Now, if you read before that, it'll tell you about all these deeds of the body. We were at one time foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various kinds of lust and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, and so on. You see there, when it comes to the deeds of the body, blood isn't even mentioned there. It's the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And so I would suggest to you that I think it's perfectly legitimate to think that, yes, the Israelite came by way of sacrifice. Yes, now as a priest, I must have cleansing from defilement, but also of the dual effect of the cross of Calvary, sprinkling of blood for cleansing of the conscience and the washing of regeneration for the deeds and and so on connected with the body. And so these are some of the things that the labor represents. I'll give you one last one to think about, which is interesting as well. So how many Gospels do we have when we say Gospels? Yes, Well, yes, there is that sense in which we only have one gospel that we preach. But when we talk about books, four, yes, four books. And I kind of went over them with the gate. I know that's a lot to remember far back. But anyway, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, all of them talk about the last night that the Lord Jesus was here on earth in various ways. Three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, put the emphasis on the covenant that he established through the shedding of his blood, the new covenant, which is why we as Christians, when we obey the Lord, we come together on the first day of the week and we take that cup, which he told us to, which is representative of the new covenant made in his blood. But John doesn't talk about that. He talks about that night on which, in which the Lord Jesus was betrayed. But John talks about something different, doesn't he? He talks about water. And you remember the story with Peter. Peter, you know, foot and mouth disease. And uh, But yet, thank the Lord for Peter, because we wouldn't have a whole lot of things we have if Peter hadn't have been one to speak out like he did. And so you remember the whole scene of the foot washing thing. And... It's a kind of a contradiction in terms, isn't it? When the Lord comes to Peter and he says, not so, Lord. Wait a minute. I'm Lord. Yes, so. No, not so, Lord. You're not going to wash my feet. You're never going to wash my feet. Well, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. Well, Peter says then, Lord, not just my feet. He goes the other way, doesn't he? Everything. No, Peter. He that is bathed only needs to have his feet washed. Once bathed, always bathed, you see. 
You just need your feet washed now. And so John's emphasis is not on blood. It's on water. Same night, same meal, same set of circumstances. The three Gospels that talk more about the blood, and John brings in that other aspect of redemption, that washing of water, the initial bathing, and then the cleansing of the feet, the walk, and so on. And so we remember, too, that the, Ab- the Israelite living back then wouldn't have known anything about that. He just knew that if a priest was going to serve God, he couldn't do it without first coming to the altar and then coming to the laver. But the average Israelite never came to the laver. It wasn't for them. It was for a priesthood once established to serve God. So with that um, schedule. Okay. And who's praying? You're going to say me again? Yes. <laughs> Figured you would. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus. Lord, you were so faithful and patient to teach the Israelites lessons with this earthly tabernacle. And not only that, but we still learn so much from it. Some things we learn by direct teaching of what it means and what it meant to them. And some things we learn by way of contrast. We thank you for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he provides a cleansing from a guilty conscience by the shedding of his blood, his death on the cross. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit of God in the washing of regeneration, cleansing our minds and hearts by faith. We're thankful that the Lord can get on the inside, and it's not just about cleaning up on the outside, that you work from the inside out. We thank you for it. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.